Support for Waveform comes from Anthropic. So looking for an AI solution for a business, it might be time to check out the Claude 3 family from Anthropic, your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. So whether you're powering a customer chat experience or doing complex R&D or need advanced analysis, Anthropic can help provide you with frontier intelligence. So if you're looking for speed, power, or anything in between, the Claude 3 family offers AI models for a variety of tasks and budgets. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's going on, people of the internet? Welcome back to a special episode of the Waveform Podcast, where we're talking about space. I'm your host, well, we're your hosts. I'm Marquez. I'm Andrew. And we've got David here, who's been doing tons of research and pouring over the most scientific thing we've done an episode on yet. Mm. It is the James Webb Space Telescope. Surely you've seen it in your feed. Surely you've seen something about it. But we want to dive into the amazing things about it, all the things that went well, all the things that could have gone wrong, the amazing engineering behind it, everything like that is worth diving into. And that's exactly what we're doing in this episode. So buckle up. David's going to host and take us through everything. Let's get into it. And if all the other long-form episodes made you depressed, this one's actually not depressing. And this is a pretty sick exciting. one. This, this is pretty this great. This one is positive. So, Spoiler alert. All right, guys. We're back with another long-form waveform episode. Long-form waveform. Yeah. Long I'm form, ready. Of course. Wave long. Long wave. Yeah. There are long waves in this episode. Oh, that's perfect. Are there? This so, is perfect what for waveform. Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> So today, we're going to talk about something that has been in the news a lot recently. It's called the James Webb Space, James Telescope. Webb Space Telescope. The James Webb Space Telescope. James Webb Space Telescope. I'm curious, have you guys heard anything about this guy? A little bit. I've seen some headlines, and I think that was... Uh, I was initially curious because I've seen endless photos from the Hubble Space Telescope, and my understanding is that this is the big, new, mm. next next generation telescope that's going to teach us everything about the universe. Yeah. And that's kind of as far as I got, which is, you know, I, I do want to look into it more, but that's, that's pretty sweet. I've just seen a couple of pictures, and it looks really cool, but I also then tried <laughs> not to look at too many pictures because I knew you guys were doing this, and I wanted you to tell me about it instead. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been, thank been you. Uh, holding back the research and <laughs> waiting for this moment for it to all be explained to us. Yeah. So today we're going to go through multiple parts of this. We're going to go through all the physics that make this thing really incredible, <clears throat> and then we're also going to go through the actual engineering side of it, which is also very interesting. Uh, Adam and I interviewed someone from NASA, an astrophysicist at Harvard, and we interviewed someone from Carnegie Mellon. As you guys know, it, this telescope's been all over the news. I don't know if this is just like my specific YouTube recommendations slash my Google feed recommendations, but I can't seem to get this thing out of my feed. Yeah, if it's you, been everywhere. I mean, yeah. that's the thing is like it's usually you don't have like a big headline in science like this, mm -hmm. but every once in a while where someone discovers a new exoplanet or someone finds a new event in the universe that's kind of cool to point a telescope mm -hmm. at. 
but this was one that was hitting all the feeds for yeah. sure. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I actually saw it in something that had nothing to do with space, so that means it's reaching out for even like not technology, just a totally other podcast about nothing much, and they were talking about the telescope. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's been it's been like transcendent mm -hmm. throughout a, a ton of different categories. So to just kind of get uh, a little overview of what this thing is, this telescope was originally conceived around the time of Hubble in the 1980s, right? Yeah. So you had Hubble, which was sort of that telescope that everyone knows a lot about. It sees in the very specific spectrum. It has produced a lot of very pretty pictures. So when I was going home for Thanksgiving, I started doing a lot of research into this thing because they started to get ready to finally actually launch this. It's 2022 now. So, okay, I'm expecting 30 years newer and better technology to be going up into the, into the orbit of the Earth to uh, make way better pictures. Cameras have gotten a lot better yeah. in the last 30 years, right? Yeah, but they didn't seven. make it in the last two months and then launch her That's up. fair. Yeah. That's fair. So this is actually supposed to launch uh, a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> really? Uh, it's gotten delayed and delayed and delayed. It was originally supposed to cost $1 billion. Uh, total spend Easy. was $11 billion. Oh. Uh, was supposed to launch multiple years ago, and they just kept delaying it, and they needed to invent certain types of technology to be able to actually use it. That That'll do it. Mm -hmm. All of these things. So did you guys know that NASA was not originally founded as a science program? NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration? Mm -hmm. Was it military? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I guess that's the obvious other guess. I was going <laughs> to give myself credit, but it feels kind of obvious. Yeah. yeah. So when uh, Russia launched Sputnik, they, mm -hmm. they established NASA like a few months later. Okay. Yeah. It was like, oh no, we can't be beat. You know, they basically established NASA to be able to get to the moon so they couldn't be outdone. That was the whole yeah. purpose of NASA, right? But obviously, when you put that much money into a program and you're actually launching people and things into space, you might as well do some science, right? It's just funny that, like, While that wasn't... Yeah, yeah. That wasn't really the original intention. It was just sort of like, we got to put our flag on the moon. Yeah. We got to get there first, right? That's something I hear from Neil deGrasse Tyson all the time, which is, like, we'll spend zillions of dollars on like the highest end military equipment and then we'll get some trickle down stuff in everyday life as a result mm -hmm. which is like i don't know we did a video with him a while ago where uh -huh. he landed on like that's how we have the magnetic, magnetic resonance, resonance imaging, imaging. <laughs> mri that, okay. that's oh, how you the, the mri machine, machine. yeah which and velcro from, yeah all kinds of stuff like yeah, that. yeah 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 okay yeah so like there's always been this push and pull with nasa right because it's a publicly funded program so we have to put part of our national budget into it our taxes go to it so what makes that kind of interesting, though, is that this telescope is technically something that's owned by all of us. That's something that oh, the guy nice. at NASA wanted to sort of like okay. hammer home was that like this is a project for everybody and everyone can actually submit proposals as to what it points it at. Okay. And there's a panel okay. of, you know, smarter huh. scientists than most of us who mm -hmm. can decide what is actually good science. Um, but we are able to access all the data that it collects. You can look at it. It's completely open. Like everything about it is completely open, which is really amazing. Um, but there's always been this push and pull with NASA because we have to give our taxes to it, right? It is 0.48% of the national budget, which is not that much money, but it's still it's a lot. also of, a lot of money. Lot of yeah. money. <laughs> so I'd asked Paul Geithner, the guy at NASA that we talked to for this project, like why is it named the James Webb Space Telescope, right? Because it seems like a kind of random name. Mm -hmm. Turns out he's this administrator of NASA. He was the second administrator. He was kind of a bureaucrat that got appointed by the government. Wasn't really a scientist, but he was really focused on making sure that we actually did science if we were going to put the money into sending people into space, sending stuff into space. 
And he's sort of like known as the reason that NASA still does science. Okay. So that's kind of a big deal, right? Like he's yeah, not a scientist sure. himself and most stuff is named after the people who like discover things or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of interesting that like a bureaucrat got something named after him. That's a pretty, and that's perfect for this telescope. That's a perfect right. uh, representation. Can you can you guess what the original name of JWST was before they changed it to his name? Hubble too. Oh wait, but it was around the same time, <laughs> No, but right? it came out after, or it was conceived around the time Hubble was going out because they needed to figure out what was next. It was called the super, super deep, super deep space portal viewer telescope. What's the acronym for that? S S S D S P V T. I'm going to go bubble. So then there's Hubble and bubble. (laughs) And if that's not it, I would be really upset. No, it's, it was just the next generation space telescope. Yeah, that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. Which is kind of funny. I feel like they kind of do that just to be very literal, right? Nice. So yeah, after the moon missions happened, pop culture kind of blew up with a lot of space stuff. We got stuff like Star Trek, Star Wars, Space Invaders, 2001 A Space Odyssey. All of a sudden pop culture was like all over. NASA was like the big thing that people were excited about. So luckily people started actually being okay with putting their tax money into it. We talked about this recently, like astronaut was the number one thing that kids wanted to be for the longest period of time. Remember that. Almost only recently did that become YouTuber. (laughs) But also we haven't actually sent any people to the moon in such a long time. That there's nothing for them to see to want to be an astronaut. Exactly. Yeah. Kids like want to be what they see plus what is cool. Hmm. And they don't really see astronauts in pop culture anymore. No. And like, remember Epcot had like, was it called Project Space or something like that? Whereas like you would launch, it was a ride at Epcot where you launched up in like a space shuttle. Like you got to experience launching in a space shuttle, like Space Mountain at Epcot, like space was everything. So we launched Hubble in 1990. It was actually a pretty old space telescope considering Mm -hmm. that we're still, you know, we've gotten a lot of images from it even recently. Yeah. Um, but this is probably the telescope you guys are most familiar with. You you had mentioned something about it. So Hubble operates in the <clears throat> visible light spectrum. And there is a very wide spectrum for light to operate in, right? Visible light is the light that humans can see. It's the color spectrum. It's a sliver of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. A very spectrum. small sliver. Of I didn't know that. I kind of assumed because I always see those images from like deep space, like a look at a nebula or something. Mm-hmm. And they always like preface it by saying, this isn't exactly the picture. Mm-hmm. This is a, a rendering, a representation of the data from the telescope. Mm-hmm. So like they're capturing a lot of information and if you were to just look at the nebula, it wouldn't look like that amazing, like colorful cloud of stars. It would be pretty rough on your eyes. So they adjust it. Yeah. I, I kind of assumed they were getting like infrared and all, yeah. x-rays and all sorts of other stuff. But that, right. I, I did not know that. It's sort of like tone mapping, right? It's exactly. Like you say it doesn't look that way. And it's like, well, we can only perceive violet through, yeah. you know, deep red, right. right? But actually they can do this thing. It's like tone mapping where they take specific frequencies of that frequency and then Mm -hmm. they map that to different colors Mm -hmm. yeah yeah hubble operates in the visible light spectrum but it's a super super small part of the entire electromagnetic system of the entire electromagnetic spectrum so it can only see a certain distance into space or through a certain amount of time this is now we're getting into like nerdy like yeah. math structure. Basically, uh-huh. the universe is expanding. Therefore, light that is over a certain age 
takes longer to reach us because it's coming from further away. So if mm. it's a uh, if it's a faster no, see, I'm not, I'm gonna mess it up. I don't know exactly <laughs> okay. how to explain it, but basically, yeah. you can only see so far into the into the past if you can only see so much of the different wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So if you if you can see X rays, you can see more parts of the universe than if you can't see X rays, basically. Mm -hmm. But that's about as deep as I could go on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so basically, light travels at a static speed, right? Still extremely in a vacuum. Fast. It's uh -huh. always the same speed. Yeah, space it, it is can a go through. Yeah, 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 yeah. It can go through materials and change speed, sort of. But so space is so big that we actually measure distance in light years, and right. it's a little bit confusing because you would mm -hmm. think years is time. Turns out space and time are kind of the same thing, right? Yeah, light, a light year is the amount of distance that a, a ray of light would travel in a year yeah. at the speed of light. Right. So the speed of light is constant, so a light year is an incredibly long distance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So on Earth, that speed is so fast that it doesn't really matter. This is at like cosmic scales, not like us versus Mars. That's Paul Geithner. He's a deputy project manager, technical at NASA. I saw recently that uh, Earth is seven light minutes from the sun. Actually eight, but uh, close enough. So it takes light seven minutes to get from the Earth to the sun. So mm -hmm. a light year is a, an absurdly far distance. Mm -hmm. Like light goes a really long way yeah. in a year. Yeah. So yeah, okay. Yeah, so if like the sun just randomly turned off or burned out, we wouldn't know for seven minutes. Exactly. We would still feel the heat. We would still feel the energy. We would still see. Saw a Vsauce sky. video about that. That was a crazy. You know, gravity travels at the speed of light. That was another thing. We'd uh, orbit where the sun used to be for seven more minutes. Anyway, that's uh, probably that's a little off topic. <laughs> that's a little off topic. But okay, here we are. Yeah. Okay. So Hubble, because it only exists in the visible light spectrum, and it's made to see things that are you know the visible light that's getting to us, mm -hmm. can only see a certain distance yep. because the light that is hitting us is still in the visible light spectrum, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So, but what if you wanna see further in time, right? What if you wanna see closer to like the Big Bang to understand the origins of the universe, how things were originally developed, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. right? To do that, you have to look at infrared light. So on the electromagnetic spectrum, you've got ultraviolet light, and mm -hmm. then you've got visible light, and then you've got infrared light. Mm -hmm. Those two things pad the visible spectrum, right? Yeah. But the universe is expanding, as you alluded to earlier, and that causes something called redshift. Do you guys mm -hmm. know what redshift is? Oh, I. If this was a pop quiz, I would not be getting this right. <laughs> but I it's kind even of be trying to answer. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to butcher it because I'm sure you'll tell me exactly what it is. But it's kind of like the Doppler effect, but for light. Is that? Yeah, that's kind pretty of, accurate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what the Doppler effect is? When something gets closer to you, it's sort of compressing the wavelength because it's it'll sound differently because it's approaching you and when it's leaving you mm -hmm. versus if it was just stationary right next to you. So mm -hmm. when you hear a train pass by, it sounds like it changes pitch right. because the frequency is perceived differently when it's relatively changing position to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can like only ever imagine the police siren going past yeah, and like yeah, the yeah. picture yeah. of it and trying yeah. to explain it in words is yeah. very hard. It's hard to say with words. It's a relativity thing and relativity is very hard to comprehend. It takes a while to sort of understand it. Yeah. And it took me a long time to understand redshift, like three weeks. Okay, so this is definitely a little bit of an oversimplification, but redshift is it's sort of like the Doppler effect, but for light. Right, but because light moves so fast that we don't see redshift in everyday life. Like, if a blue light is moving away from us, it doesn't turn red. But over thousands of light years, there is a perceived 
change in the frequency of that light. It's not actually changing frequency because light doesn't actually lose energy as it moves, but because of relativity, we perceive it differently. Very hard to like yeah. understand. I'm trying to put the puzzle pieces together in my head with redshift and being able to see further in the universe. Yeah. Sounds like if the universe is expanding, then right. the most precious information in the universe is traveling away from us. And so all of that light information or electromagnetic information is being shifted towards infrared. Mm -hmm. And so the Hubble can't see that stuff, but something that could see frequency wavelengths like infrared could see that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can you can sort of think of redshift as like a loaf of raisin bread. This is the analogy that Paul made with me. Okay, I'm, a, okay. So, okay. I'm picturing raisin bread. So you've got the loaf and uh -huh. then you have the raisins in the bread, right? But you haven't put it in the oven yet, right? And you've got dough and it's got raisins in it and all those raisins are kind of close together. And then you throw it in the pan and you stick it in the oven and the dough rises, right? So the dough is like space. So it's expanding and it's expanding all of it's expanding. As the bread expands, the raisins are also expanding away from each other. Right. That's like stars and planets in our universe, right? So the raisins are effectively the stars. The stars are emitting light, but because they are expanding away from each other at like an exponential rate, because it's it moves faster away from each other as the fabric expands. That's the key. That's the key. The universe is expanding, but it's also accelerating in its expansion. Yes. That was hard for my brain to wrap around, right. but again, another Neil deGrasse Tyson quote. This dark energy in the future will render the universe so large, having accelerated so significantly that all the galaxies of the night sky will have accelerated beyond our horizon. What? And, and all the galaxies are the source of our knowledge of cosmology, of the Big Bang. Everything we know about the history of the universe comes to us from these galaxies. If they accelerate beyond our horizon, the next generation of cosmic explorers will only have the stars of the Milky Way to think about. One by one, the stars in the night sky will disappear because they're all moving away from us. And eventually it will be completely blank and we will have no access to the information from the beginnings of the universe because it will be have moved it will have moved away so fast that we can't see it anymore. Yeah. And that, that was like that's pretty also deep. sort of part of the theory of like the inevitable heat death of the universe. Yeah. Is that like everything will just keep moving away to so where far. they can't interact anymore and right. then there is no energy and then the universe is dead. Hmm. The reason that it's accelerating is in its expansion is because you can see this graph right here. Hmm. That's the Big Bang. Stars and stuff are being pulled by some unknown force that we don't understand yet. And so they think that there is like, that's dark matter that is pulling mm -hmm. these stars and these planets away from each other, but it's making them ex accelerate. Yeah. Right? So, okay, back to the raisin bread. But you haven't put it in the oven yet. <laughs> so when things are accelerating away from each other, you're getting the Doppler effect, the red shift, but from the backside, right? Instead of coming towards each other and the frequency goes higher, they're going mm -hmm. away from each other and the frequency is going lower. So when if something is emitted in ultraviol ultraviolet and visible light, by the time it gets to you, because of the because they're expanding away from each other, it ends up in something like the infrared spectrum. Okay. Right? So then we had to build a telescope that could actually take in infrared light. Sounds like this was the major next generation type thing for James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. So that's kind of the interesting thing, right? Is that We've actually had telescopes in pretty much every spectrum 
already. Mm. We already had a telescope in the infrared spectrum too. It was called Spitzer, but mm. it just didn't have nearly as high resolution cameras and it didn't have like all this tech that JWST has. So it could see like, you know, some stuff, but it couldn't really get the information that we're trying to get from JWST. It's like a mid-range. We're looking for the ultra. <laughs> With the flagship. We're looking for the yeah. flagship it, infrared telescope. Right. Yeah. It, it wasn't even remotely as yeah. uh, as advanced. Yeah. So, um, but basically we, we had telescopes in all the different ranges from like X-ray to visible to infrared. It was such a smart move in the 1980s to plan what we call the Great Observatories. This is Jonathan McDowell. He's an astronomer at the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard and Smithsonian which was not let's build one, let's build Hubble, but let's have a portfolio of telescopes. And with that array of telescopes combined with ground-based, we could cover the whole spectrum and get the whole story. And that was scientifically gangbusters. It was, it was, it was really successful. Because we wanted to confirm science, right? If we're seeing something in a specific spectrum of the electromagnetic spectrum, if we can confirm that in every other spectrum, then we basically know it must be true, at least in our version of physics, right? In our version of the universe. Um, but yeah, Spitzer was old tech, and it was way smaller than JWST, too. With telescopes, bigger is better, pretty much always. Yeah, this is one... I, I keep seeing... Um, you know, I always wonder, like, well, why don't you just use, like, better sensors that are more sensitive, blah, blah. But with space, you, you can't really overcome the need for physics. Mm -hmm. Like, you need a massive telescope to see further and see more. Right. And like down here on Earth, the difference between here and taking a picture of across the street or taking a picture of down the block is like, oh, go from a 50 millimeter lens to an 800 millimeter lens. Mm -hmm. But to see from here to the beginnings of the universe, like you can't overcome the need for, you just need a huge telescope. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was I was very impressed with the the physics and the precision needed to create like an extremely smooth surface for the mirrors yeah. and an extremely large amount of, I'm sure you'll explain this, yeah, but like, right, right, right. that's the type of stuff that's like straight up engineering prowess, yeah. which is exciting. Yeah, the JWST is massive. 22 Over. meters by 12 meters. Okay, 22 meters, so yeah. 60 feet. Cool. Okay. That's pretty big. Yeah. Also, effectively, if you want to capture more light, you have to have a bigger telescope, especially in the infrared spectrum. Because if you think about the way that light and energy are sort of the same thing, you get burned by ultraviolet light, right? And the reason is because it has a really high energy because it has a really high frequency. Mm -hmm. So that like burns your skin, gets absorbed by your skin. Mm -hmm. You've got visible. And when you redshift down to infrared, it's a much lower frequency. So there's less energy coming through it. There's like less photons to be captured. Because the frequency is like how many photons you're being hit with, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if you're being hit with way less photons, you need a way bigger telescope, right? To be more you sensitive. To be more sensitive. And yeah. this thing is insanely sensitive. You can think of it as like a light bucket. Um, like if you put a little shot glass out in the yard and it's raining and you put a kiddie pool out in the yard when it's raining, well, they'll each collect half an inch of rain if it rains half an inch. But which one has more water if you pour it out? Um, the little shot glass has you know, less than an ounce in it. The kiddie pool, it's a half inch deep, but, um, you know, in each of those raindrops, you can say is photons of light. So um, that kiddie pool, while it's a half inch deep, the kiddie pool is like six feet in diameter and you pour the water out and you can fill like a Home Depot bucket. Yeah, they so just make it as big as possible to get yeah. the best resolution that you it's can. It's a good visual. So you're probably wondering what we are actually trying to do with this telescope, because like, 
why are we trying to see back to the origins of the universe, right? Why not? I mean, that's obviously, yeah. yeah, that's a good that's a good question. And Paul even told me that. And he's like, well, first of all, it's really cool. Yeah. We will learn something about physics. It'll may have offshoots that we can't imagine yet, right? And um, I mean, it's intrinsically cool, but yeah, maybe it'll have some application to something closer to home for a lot of people. Basically, the original use case for the telescope was to look back at a time sort of right after the Big Bang. So we're not really sure how those first stars formed, but because we have things like Hubble that can see a lot closer um, and more recently, we can sort of create like a timeline of the way that stars formed at the very early universe, hmm. a little bit later, a little bit later, a little bit later, a little bit later now, right? Yeah. And create like a little, you know that um, the first movie is like the horse that was like multiple frames kind of running. <laughs> yeah. Same sort of scenario, right? With that, we're able to sort of understand like how did stars get from here to here? Like how did the universe do that? But there is a much cooler application for James Webb. Not necessarily much cooler because like understanding how the early universe was born, especially right after the Big Bang. It's pretty cool. That's 13.8 billion years ago. Yeah. We're basically, we made a time machine. You're, it's not so much that Webb's a time machine. I know a lot of people like to say that, but but you're looking at traveled time. That's kind of a cool way to put it. Um, lights of travels at a finite speed, 300,000 kilometers a second, 186,000 miles a second. So um, it takes a long it takes a long time for something really, really far away for the light to get here. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the light that is just now hitting us that got emitted 13.8 billion years ago, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously really amazing. But there is a use case for the James Webb Space Telescope that we didn't really know about or think about when we first started ideating it and building it, and that's exoplanets. So uh, do you know what exoplanets are? Yes. Well, I don't. A planet... We have the planets in our own solar system. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, but there are other stars that have planets orbiting them. I guess anything not in our own solar system is an exoplanet. There's lots of, there's probably thousands of exoplanets at this point discovered. We're interested in the ones that are like similar to Earth and maybe close to Earth, mm -hmm. but there are tons of exoplanets. Are we their exoplanets? We are, <laughs> we are exoplanets to them. Yeah. yeah. It's all about relativity. But yeah, that is, uh, that is my understanding is it's any any other bodies orbiting stars that are not yeah. in our own solar system. Yeah, so like the definition is just like a planet that is not in our solar system, right? Yeah. And we weren't even totally sure that they existed until 1992. It was still a viable theory that our solar system was formed by some weird freak accident and none of the other stars in the sky had planets, right? And it was also a viable theory that we live in the Star Trek universe, where every time you go into orbit around a star, there's a whole bunch of planets and some of them have life on it. You know? And we didn't really know. We had no idea. And there were like theories, but we couldn't really confirm anything. But the first exoplanet was finally like discovered in 1992. And then that led to something called the exoplanet revolution. In the 90s was the first uh, discovery of an exoplanet orbiting a star uh, like the sun. That's Peter Gao. He's a staff scientist at Carnegie EPL. And so with the first um, uh, exoplanet orbiting a, a sun-like star in 95, we started getting, okay, normal stars can definitely have planets. And then uh, more discoveries trickled in over the next decade or so, and it just more and more and more until 
uh, we had the launch of the Kepler Space Telescope. So the Kepler Space Telescope was essentially a light bucket, uh, just collecting as much uh, visible photons. So that's, you know, again, light that we can all see. And its main goal is just to find planets. It's just to stare at a patch of the sky, very stable telescope, try to find as many planets through uh, the transit method, where the, the, the planet goes in front of the star and makes it slightly dimmer, as possible. And so it found a lot. <laughs> they confirmed one, and then they confirmed like three the next year. And then the next year they confirmed five, and then 10, and then 20, and then 100, and then 1,000. So, so far, as of January 1st, 2022, we have confirmed 4,905 exoplanets, which is a, a lot of planets. <laughs> and they kind of assume that they're just infinite exoplanets. Pl it's funny because we're, we're the only ones we found life on, but there's thousands of planets orbiting stars. And then maybe right. some of them are in the Goldilocks zone of their own star where they're mm -hmm. not too hot, not too cold. And then some of them are just the right size and some of them have just the right gravity to have an atmosphere. And we're like, maybe some of these are Earth-like, but mm -hmm. we have, we've never found life anywhere. Yeah. That's crazy how many exoplanets there are. Yeah. And wow. the, the best way to find an exoplanet is through something called the transit method. And effectively, we see a star in the sky. Right. We stare at it for a really long time. It's emitting a certain frequency of light, a certain brightness of light, and we see that. And then randomly, maybe for an hour, maybe for a minute, maybe for 10 hours, that star will get slightly dimmer, very right. slightly dimmer. The first exoplanet uh, that we discovered through the transit method got 2% dimmer. But it's actually very common for exoplanets to only make their stars like 0.002% dimmer. Yeah. So yeah. you have to use very, very specific, very like, like nice instruments to understand if they're getting dimmer. This is how advanced we've gotten. Like before, when we were discovering new planets, yeah. we would look through a telescope, not we, but we'd look through a telescope and see, I've found a new object, there it is. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we found more and more complex methods of observing like, okay, I've, I've observed that this thing has been making a path through the sky and it seems to have some gravitational pull being exerted on it. So I'll do the math and find that there must be an object over here because of the way gravity is acting. Mm -hmm. And then they can find objects that way. Now with transit, like you said, it's literally like I've been staring at this star mm -hmm. for weeks mm -hmm. and I saw that there must have been something just around the size of a planet passing in between us and Earth uh, for just the right amount of time that we can decide that there's an object there and that that's an exoplanet. Mm -hmm. That's a crazy advance. Yeah. All right, we're going to talk more about this telescope in a second here, but for now, we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Support for Waveform comes from Coda. So it can be tough to stay organized when your team is spread across time zones. With Coda, you can help keep your whole team on the same page with an all-in-one collaborative workspace that brings together the best of documents, spreadsheets, and apps into one platform. That means less time ping-ponging between different tabs and tools and more time on your projects. 
So with Coda's extensive planning capabilities, you can stay aligned when managing planning cycles and while measuring objectives and key results. Plus, you can access hundreds of templates and get inspired by others in Coda's gallery. So over 50,000 teams across the world collaborate with Coda, from the New York Times to Square, uh, from Toast to TED and Uber. So if you want a platform that enables and empowers your team to collaborate effectively and focus on shared goals, you can get started with Coda today for free. You can head over to coda.io slash wave. So that's coda, C-O-D-A dot I-O slash wave to get started for free. Coda.io forward slash wave. So the, the method that you referenced was actually how they found the first exoplanet. The which gravity? Is, yeah, they, yeah, they see a little bit of a wobble, mm-hmm. right? Just a little bit of a wobble. And they can basically know like, oh, something else is tugging on that star. Yep. And the fact that a planet tugs on a star is kind of a weird concept, but they're kind of both tugging at each other, and the yep. star will sort of wobble a little bit. But now it's like the transit method is imagine you have a super bright flashlight, and you like point it directly at your face, and you put like a pebble in front of the flashlight. You're not going to see the pebble. You know, it's not gonna it's not gonna completely block out that light yeah. because the flashlight is so bright that it's just searing you in the face. But there is a measurable dif- difference in the brightness because that pebble exists. You're being yeah. hit by just a few less photons, right? Yeah. It's not a it's not a visual observation with our eyes so much as the instruments that are sensitive enough to see the difference mm-hmm. and actually report that there is a noticeable change in light there. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And so what makes JWST really good at studying these things is that effectively you're able to figure out what is on that planet, what that planet is made of based on like a spectral fingerprint. So you take the specific uh, the specific waves of light that are hitting you from that star uh-huh. and you subtract what you see, the difference from the exoplanet. Okay. And then you can basically understand what chemical makeup of that exoplanet is. That's like sci-fi. That just felt like you gave me two numbers and it equaled a potato or something <laughs> like that. That's like we pointed an instrument at a star yeah. and we somehow can measure all of the electromagnetic information coming from the star. Coming from mm-hmm. it. And that and then, makeup and equals. That, yeah, then we subtract, you know, there's a little pebble that crosses in front of the star. Yeah, yeah. And then we measure it at that point and we can find a slightly different footprint. And yeah. so the difference and between those is the atmosphere of that planet. Yeah. What? Yeah. It's so so beyond. That's like yeah. sci-fi. Yeah. yeah. That's it's, amazing. It's through a science called spectroscopy where there are basically these little black lines in the electromagnetic spectrum where we're not getting mm. that light. Mm-hmm. And if we're not getting that light, it means that that thing is absorbing that light. Which means it's in the atmosphere. And different chemicals, different elements absorb different lights. That's why we have like the periodic table, right? So if it's being absorbed and there's that black line, that means that's what it's made up of. Wow. You wearing the histogram shirt while explaining this is so perfect. Can I just say that? (laughs) that This is obviously a very advanced histogram, but this is photography. Thought about it lightly today. It's great. (laughs) Well done. Well well, well done. Thank you. Um, But now back to redshift, right? Mm -hmm. We see these black lines in the electromagnetic spectrum and we assume like, oh, does that mean that's made out of that? But then you have to account for the redshift that's happening. Oh, true. So if you know how far away that planet is, then you know exactly how much redshift is happening to it. You shift where the black lines are, and then you know exactly what Mm. elements that planet is made of. Got it. So it's like the decoder ring. What is that? 
Is that a good reference? <laughs> what you said you said you have a black line, right? Uh -huh. And then that's what it used to be. But then you have to take the red shift to shift, to shift it. it over, yeah. and that's what it actually is. Uh -huh. So like the decoder ring. Man, you guys never watched a Christmas story? Does Shoot this make sense, out. Adam? Okay, thank you. Before I go any further, <laughs> I just want to check. Like the decoder ring is like you have the alphabet, and then you spin the other half of it, and then like. W might represent R because of the way this is now oh, okay. like yeah. shifted. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the redshift decoder ring of materials yeah. of the yeah, yeah, yeah. space. You're welcome. Uh, that's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a deep cut. So yeah. if we if we know trying to make this uh, <laughs> <laughs> relevant to the normal people out there, nice. yeah. like me. So yeah. So if we know what kind of light that star is emitting, mm -hmm. and then we know uh, what spectrum it's in when it gets to us, then we know how much it's been redshifted. Mm -hmm. And if we know how much it's been redshifted, then we know how much to shift the spectroscopy of that planet. Oh, wow. Math. That's incredible. Very cool. I'm right? glad we've gotten this far. This is sick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And what's cool about this is that we're we're discovering all these exoplanets that we didn't really anticipate could ex either could exist or like would exist right we found a lot of exoplanets that are like so close to their stars that they're totally molten planets they're just like lava mm. planets Whoa. think about like shark boy and lava girl right there's like <laughs> there we have um gas giants in our solar system and they only exist because they're so big that the gas is actually is gravity. actually has gravity right yep. But we found like water worlds and molten lava worlds, and we have found these special kind of planets um, called super puffs. Oh God! Can you guess what that would be made of? Super puffs. We already said gas. We already said water. We already said lava. <laughs> molten, whatever. What would be left? I'm picturing like a super, like a extremely low density gas giant. Yeah. But then there's these really weird low-density planets that have uh, densities like styrofoam and cotton candy. One thing to think about is if you have something that is so low density, then it needs a lot of gas, essentially, to, to be part of the planet because gas is the lowest density thing that we can think of. Um, but based on our understanding of planet formation, it's hard to uh, for a planet to just have that much gas, but also a low mass, which is all of these uh, uh, most of these um, superpowers also have very low masses. And so if you have low mass, then it's hard to just attract all these gas to you and make yourself very puffy. At the same time, um, it's easy to lose this gas uh, when, when it's, it's heated up by the central star, for example. And so some of these planets shouldn't even exist based on our understanding of how fast atmosphere can just get lost into space. So on some of these, we're guessing like, oh, maybe they have like an iron core, but then like the rest of it is gas, you know? Yeah. Like if you look at Jupiter, it does have a core, yeah, but it's just very small compared to like the rest of the planet. Mm -hmm. So there are all these planets that we don't even really think should exist based on our understanding of physics wild it's kind of like yeah. how we find a new species on earth every day it's kind of crazy how many new species of animals that you discover you're just like what it, yeah. it's a fish with feet on its head and an Ooh, upside down yeah. stomach like what is this <laughs> yeah. and we're just finding all these planets that we've never even thought would exist but yeah. of course they do of yeah. course they do yeah all I really want to know is when are we going to find life on one of these random planets because <laughs> yeah. that's that's what we're after isn't it like that's like that's like the big picture. Like, are we alone in the universe? Type questions. Yeah. Where every every place we look, we're like, well, could it hold life? Yeah. What's so, it made of? Does it support life? Is right. it the right temperature? Is it yeah. the right makeup? Yeah. 
yeah. mean, that's what's cool about the spectroscopy thing is we can understand like, okay, we know what supports life here on Earth. So if you get a similar thing, if you know that a planet is made up of water and it also has hydrogen and nitrogen, we like, love that. We could get, you know, <laughs> we love that. But uh, we have discovered exoplanets before that people are like, oh, this could be Earth 2.0, but then someone else debunks it. And they equated it to sort of like cybersecurity, right? Where someone will put something out and then someone goes out to try to debunk debunk that thing they just proved. Right. And this has happened over and over again where they think they found like Earth 2.0 and then someone else just went and they're like, oh, actually like that ele element got masked as oxygen because of this like random other thing. Wow. And it's kind of sad, but. There's also an interesting element of uh Curiosity about whether our assumptions about what harbors life are accurate or not. Mm -hmm. Like carbon-based life, maybe it doesn't have to be Earth-like to support life. Mm -hmm. Maybe it could be, maybe Jupiter and another exosolar system is like the most lively place right. in the universe. Who knows? Right. And but, the fact that we've yeah. discovered like 5,000 exoplanets. Yeah, something I mean, out there. And then they've extrapolated this and there's they're, they're basically like, there are too many to count. Like we, there are so many and we're just doing our best to like, study yeah. as many as we can yeah um so yeah we can study these planets to a very specific degree uh as a reference for how sensitive the jwst is it can see the energy from a bumblebee on the moon that's wait <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's wild wait so <laughs> hold on a second yeah so the moon remind me moon is 250,000 miles, miles away, away. The end. So it can measure. So let's say you point the James Webb Space Telescope at the moon. Mm -hmm. You're picking up all the energy and the spectrometer of the moon's signature. Yeah. You put a bee on the moon. Yeah. It can see that something passed in front of the moon. It can basically see the bee. Holy smokes. Okay. Yeah. This stuff yeah. is good. And not from like a not from stuff. like a telescope kind of thing, but it can detect the signature of the bee. And we can do all this, but we can't get printers to just plug and play. <laughs> yeah. This is or stay on Wi Fi. Billion this dollar crazy. industry. I mean, but you also I mean, kind it does of take about a lot of money. Before. Like we're doing this on exoplanets and whatever, yeah. and we still don't know like the bottom of the deep sea and our that's own true. Yeah, that's for, true. It's wild. But there's so much pressure, right? Well, like, let's just point JWST at the, at the, at the ocean. ocean. At the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> it is in space. It might as well point it down at us. I don't yeah, know what the it'll find. Is light gets refracted. Hey, but That's you're true. saying that we <laughs> we can, since we pay taxes, we're allowed to <laughs> suggest it, right? You could probably suggest it. Formally okay. suggest, yeah. <laughs> point it at me from up there. Let me get one of their numbers that it. you interviewed here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like it's it's very cool. It's like I think of all the people that I interviewed, what they all said was probably the most exciting thing about James Webb is that we don't really know yet what we're going to discover. I love that. Like there's parts of astronomy that just keep getting discovered year after year. Something that Jonathan McDowell said was like, this is one of the great things about astronomy, right? For me, is in my career, I've seen, I've seen fundamental philosophical questions that humans have had for millennia answered. Okay. Next question. Right. So, how old is the universe, right? People would be asking that. Okay, uh, as of, the, again, the 1990s, we now know 13.7 plus or minus 0.1 billion years. Next question, right? And then multiplicity of worlds that Giordano Bruno got burnt at the stake for, right? In the 1600s, it's like, you know, are, is Earth the only world or are worlds common in the universe? Yep, they're common. Next question. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it's it's, 
that that is for me the amazing thing that we can take these things that are not just you know what like nerdy what's the temperature of this gas cloud there but they're like these you know which i love but you know but there are these these deep questions that people have wondered about for thousands of years and we can definitively answer them and and that is the age we're living in and that's that's you know that's why we put so much effort into things like web it's cool because you're saying we've discovered these things that are so minuscule. This is going to help us extrapolate way more data from that. But then in the future, what are the minuscule things JWST is going to be seeing that we're going to build the next telescope right. to get closer to right. that? And how far is that going to go and go? Like in in history, they're going to be talking about this, about right. it could barely see anything. Look right. what we're seeing now. Totally. It's crazy. Yeah, and th there's so many other things. Like, it's going to be studying, like, quasars and the way that, like, energy gets spewed out of black holes. And, yeah. you know, it was only recently that we even really confirmed that black holes exist. <laughs> yeah, true. And now we're, like, just going crazy and on studying, studying different types of black holes. Yeah, this yeah. is... I this probably doesn't mean anything to anybody, but I'm always I'm like super torn on like what's the most important thing for humanity? And some people will say understanding the earth and like as much about the earth as possible. I I think I tweeted a while ago, like you can't we understand more about the surface of Mars than the bottom of our own ocean. Like we have a lot to learn about Earth. Yeah. But at the same time, it feels like it should be learning about the universe and learning about why you know we're here in the middle of this like cold rock in the middle of this empty expanse but like how much can we learn about the origins of how we got here mm -hmm. and like what we're made of and are we unique to this part of the universe or mm -hmm. what other stuff has gone on out there i think that's the most interesting yeah significant stuff humanity can do yeah so like yeah this telescope it's pretty sick. Yeah, it's pretty sick. And it is cool because like a lot of people have made the you know joke like, oh, are we gonna we're gonna find aliens? We're gonna find aliens. I hope so. <laughs> but like with so many exoplanets existing, we know we know that there are so many out there. There's like there is some level of probability that there is life. It's just you mm -hmm. know obviously they probably won't be humans, but probably somewhere an exponential amount of distance and light years away, there probably is humans or something like that right like yeah if there are infinite universes there are infinite possibilities you know we'll see Metaverse theory we'll hopefully <laughs> see something twice right all right so i think now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to go into the crazy engineering that actually makes this thing possible all right cool Support for this episode of Waveform comes from Gigabyte. There's a lot of talk out there about how AI is revolutionizing our world. Computers are writing newsletters, robotic bees are pollinating flowers, and a whole new wave of driverless taxis are popping up in cities all over the world. But how can AI power our passions and what we do for fun? That's where Gigabyte's AI gaming laptops come in. So their range of powerful and portable new laptops deliver cutting edge performance for anyone looking to explore the brave new world of AI powered gaming. So every 2024 Aorus machine comes equipped with the Gigabyte AI Nexus, which is like a central hub located with all the AI powered features you could hope for. So that includes super useful tools like AI Power Gear, which automatically throttles and extends your computer's battery life depending on your power source and usage. You'll also get access to AI Boost, which optimizes performance based on what you're doing in that moment, whether you're ripping through an FPS or running your own large language model. 
AI boosts automatically adjusts the GPU and processors to maximize responsiveness and deliver unparalleled efficiency. Lastly, AI Generator includes various generative AI apps for quick startup, and all 2024 Gigabyte models seamlessly integrate with tools like OpenAI and Microsoft's Copilot AI chatbot. But the Aorus 16X and the Gigabyte G6X take it to the next level with a dedicated Copilot key, allowing users to swiftly tap into productivity and generative AI capabilities. I also keep hearing AI is gonna change a lot in the gaming world. Andrew, can you think of anything about that? Not just optimization, like you said, but like more personal optimization I could see happening where like maybe you're playing a competitive game like Valorant and you want higher FPS and lower resolution. Like you, you're okay versus like The Witcher where you might want 4K crispy resolution and like a lower frame rate. I think finding that between your computer specs and what you want might help out a lot. Nice. So all of the models that I've been talking about are available right now at oris.com slash laptops slash gigabyte dash AI. So that's A-O-R-U-S dot com slash laptops slash gigabyte dash AI. Gigabyte. Team up. Fight on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back talking about James Webb, but now we're talking about the engineering of why this thing looks the way it does. What are we looking at right now? Yes. What is this? That's a lot. There's a lot. That's a big question. Yeah. It's a big question. So obviously this is the actual telescope itself. Okay. Right. Maybe not even that, obviously. Well, yeah. Okay. Maybe not even that. Even like where you point, what what part are you pointing at? Okay. So it's a very visual section of a podcast here. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna try to explain this as best as I can for the audio listeners. Sure, yeah, yeah. All right, for audio listeners, I'm holding a model in my hand of the James Webb Space Telescope that NASA sent over to us so that I could show you guys how this works. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm just gonna keep flexing that nice. that NASA sent to us. Appreciate that, NASA. <laughs> Shout out to NASA. Shout out to NASA. <laughs> um so the most recognizable thing about this James Webb Space Telescope is this honeycomb mirror section, right? Yeah. And I think most things, when you when you see things about JWST online, you see this honeycomb. Mm-hmm. Effectively, what these mirrors are is a giant light bucket. That's the light bucket that we talked about earlier, right? Now, a big reason that it is a honeycomb is because it had to be folded. Because this thing is so big, it couldn't be fully deployed in a rocket before we put it up into space, mm-hmm. right? It actually had to be folded like in half, like a credenza table. So this deployed later... Why well, can't I shouldn't do that for the audio listeners? So you've, you've got this like little tripod on top, and then you've got the mirrors right behind it that are like this honey. It literally looks like a honeycomb, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. gold colored. And then you've got the actual instruments inside of it and in the back. Okay, right. And then on the back here, ah, uh, that collects solar power. Okay. Okay. So like a rudder on the back of the. What would you describe the bottom piece as? Sort of like a platform that like, it's all on. Yeah, like a little platform, platform that okay. collects solar power, right? Yeah. It would really help if you're if you're listening to this, you should at least 
Google James Webb Space Telescope when you um, when you park your car or whenever you're yeah. <laughs> wherever you're listening to this from. So it had to be folded sort of like a credenza table because this thing again is like the size of a tennis court, so big that we couldn't put it in any rockets that existed right when we were first conceptualizing this. Fair. Okay. Um, I actually talked to Everyday Astronaut. He is a YouTuber who talked about the rocket that this went up in. But in order to fit inside of the the nose of the vehicle, they had to fold this primary mirror. That's Tim Dodd. He runs a YouTube channel called Everyday Astronaut. Um, and then fold up its very intricate sun shield and all mm. of those things, and just in order to be able to fit it inside of a, a standard rocket. And then there are other rockets that like SpaceX is putting up in the next like couple months that could have held this at full capacity. That's funny. But they started developing it as folding so long ago that they weren't in about to start over. In 1990, they weren't about to start they over. They didn't know that rockets would get so good exactly. while they were developing it that they didn't need to fold it. That's so funny. And I mean, it was supposed to launch a long time ago yeah. and it just keeps getting delayed, delayed, delayed. So this had to unfold. And there are so many parts of this that had to like unfold in space that they were very terrified because this thing cost $11 billion to build altogether. 11 billion with a big B. Yep. And there's all these like slacked parts that had to like slowly be deployed. By the way, while it's like rocketing through space, True. right? Mm -hmm. And everything had to go extremely perfectly. So the mirrors had to deploy. And what these mirrors do is they effectively reflect the infrared light that we're getting from whatever we're looking at. And they reflect them into this big center portion in the middle of this tripod that is right on top of the mirrors, Okay. right? So they have to be specifically curved and like positioned so that all of the light is being condensed right into that center area here. Mm -hmm. So the reason that the honeycomb is gold colored is because they actually plated it in gold, just a few atoms of gold. Interesting. Can you guess why they used actual gold? And by the way, the entire telescope, the entire honeycomb, the amount of gold is about a tennis ball worth of gold, which wow. is a few thousand dollars. Clearly does not really equate to the 11 yeah. billion that they yeah. used for the telescope. Uh, but can you guess why it's gold? I don't know. Is it because gold is especially reflective or refractive or like? What is it reflective of? I was going to say, does it have to do with infrared? Oh, it's reflective of certain. Well, it's reflective of like yellows and warm colors close to red. Right. So if it's a metal that's close to red, then it's going to be helpful in collecting light that is near infrared. Reflecting light. Reflecting. That is near. Right. Everything in science is the opposite of what you think it is. Yeah. When something is a color, it is actually everything but that color. Right. It's reflecting that color, and everything else is either being absorbed or going mm. through it. So gold is absorbing every color except gold. Yes. Which it reflects. It's reflecting the gold light, which is the closest, like one of the closest metals we have to red light, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's reflecting um, deeper colors in the, sp in the visible spectrum and then also the infrared light. Okay. And then some uh, fun fact that Paul told me about how actually ridiculously smooth these things are. These things are so well polished that if you expanded the JWST to the size of the continental United States, oh God. the difference between the highest mountain and the lowest ocean valley would be two inches. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So it's extremely smooth. That reminds me of a Veritasium video where he held the world's smoothest object, and he had this super smooth ball where... Essentially, yeah, it was like a perfect sphere. Mm -hmm. And if you were to expand it to the size of Earth, it would be like... 
no mountains, no hills, no wow. nothing. It would just be yeah. a perfect sphere. Yeah. So that's impressive that they got that sort of precise. I imagine it has to be that perfectly smooth to deliver uninterrupted reflections to the mirror at the front. Right, because this thing is massive, right? And yeah. you need to reflect all of that light to this little center secondary mirror. Mm -hmm. And so you had to buff it a lot, and then each individual honeycomb can move in like six degrees of freedom. It can tilt, it can pan, oh. and it has a little lever on the back that can make it like more concave or more convex. Wow. Okay. They spend literally about three months calibrating these mirrors. Wow. Just to make sure that they are as focused as physically possible on that secondary mirror. And the reason they had to make sure they do this is because Hubble, when Hubble launched, and by the way, Hubble was about 10 times as smooth as this. Wow. Which huh. is crazy. Jeez. Yes, 10 times smoother. It's, it's insane. But Hubble, when they originally launched it, it was actually out of focus by like this much. Uh-huh. And a big reason for that is because when things get warmer or colder, they expand or contract. Uh. So they actually have to build things incorrectly on Earth to the exact incorrect spec so that when they get into space and get that cold, they will be the exact correct spec. So much of this math is about accounting for variables that you never thought of. Yeah. Like when we were talking about redshift or accounting for atmospheres of different planets and stuff. It's like when you build a house and you're laying the floorboards down, you have to account for like, oh, well, in the in the winter, they're going to shrink a little bit. Mm -hmm. And in the summer, they're going to expand a little bit. So you can't put them too tight together mm -hmm. or they'll break. This is an extremely expensive, large-scale yeah. version of all of that. Now, Paul told me there, are over, there were over 400 single points of failure there you in go. this telescope, where if wow. any of one of these things went wrong, the whole mission would be a sham, $11 wow. billion dollars on the drain. So right? there's probably like a team of people for every variable. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, probably yeah. multiple. <laughs> yeah. Multiple. But after they launched, it got reduced to like just over 40. So most of them are launch, launch oh, issues. Oh, just 40 issues that could go wrong. <laughs> yeah, that oh, could cool. completely destroy it. Yeah. Right? Um. So yeah, so they expand and contract and they can kind of like become more convex and more concave to get to this very specific secondary mirror that actually defocuses the light. And you're probably thinking, why would you want to defocus the light? Wouldn't you want to like focus it completely? Yeah. But if you ever, uh, you know the Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon, where the light goes in and then it comes out all the different colors mm -hmm. of the Rex. prism, it's refracting. Yeah. Because you want to focus light, Light focuses as a very at a very specific point. So what you're actually trying to do is get the light into this third mirror set here where okay. it finalizes the focus. Oh, okay. So you're collecting all the light, you're defocusing it slightly, but shooting it into this third mirror. Yeah. And then those third that third instrument cluster refocuses the light into That's the That's where it's all in focus. Okay. Right. Right. So it's got a long way to travel and you have to get all of these light rays to be like as specifically refracting into the center. And it had to possible. unfold it into that perfect of an array. And that is not even the hardest part of this thing to unfold. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. So that's why they've spent, they literally are spending like three months trying to calibrate these mirrors. Um, as of recording time, they actually just produced like the first few images from the telescope, but they're not really real images. They were images of stars, but they were like, we we're just testing to make sure the cameras work. And you see like they're super out of focus and there'll be one star that'll be in like four places. And it's because they hadn't really calibrated mm. these mirrors yet. Hmm. And so they were just getting this super fuzzy sort of out of focus thing. And they had to make sure that they calibrate the, calibrated this correctly because Hubble was out of focus when they launched it. 
And luckily, Hubble was in low Earth orbit. We talked about low Earth orbit last time, right? Yeah. It was this area in, for people that didn't listen to the last episode, low Earth orbit is an area in orbit that is not moving with the Earth. It is moving faster than the Earth. But they were able to send an astronaut up there and basically do a lens correction. Nice. (laughs) But this thing is very, very far away. Mm -hmm. Um, It is extremely far away at a point called Lagrange Point 2, which we will get to shortly. So there's this big platform that the actual telescope is sitting on top of that is being completely covered by, and this is called the Sun Shield. And effectively what this is is it's a bunch of layers of really fancy plastic that are keeping the main thing from getting hot. Okay. Now, it is already semi-shaded by the Earth because of where it's sitting in space at a place called Lagrange Point 2, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But effectively, you've got all of these layers, really thin layers of really flimsy plastic that are extremely thin, right? And any heat that hits in here is bouncing around inside that plastic and being shot out the sides. Huh. So you want this to be like barely above, like, barely above absolute zero, like as close to absolute zero as physically possible because it's measuring things from space and you don't want it to see itself. So the instruments are producing heat because they're working. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so this was, I was wondering about this because I heard that you need the telescope to be as cold as possible. Mm -hmm. It's like, why does a telescope need to be freezing cold? But it's because it's measuring like heat signatures and temperatures and electromagnetic information it if it was hot or warm it would be radiating and distorting yeah, into and it's, its not own that far off like it would clearly disrupt the yeah. the mirrors on right the, and yeah. that's so that's the thing just is, to keep the sun and all the heat from the earth yeah. from disrupting the image because the instrument cluster is actually in the back behind the sun shield yeah and so this is what's sort of producing the heat And so you have to have this layer that is stopping things like the sun, like even the energy that is coming off the earth. Yeah. Right. From getting to the actual telescope. Wow. Because the gold, it, um, the telescope actually can see in the like orange visible spectrum into the deep infrared. So it can still see see visible light and it can still see a lot of infrared light. Mm -hmm. And it has to be as cold as physically possible because we're, we don't want any interference and it can literally be interfered with by itself. (laughs) So you have the instrument cluster on the other side. Accounting for variables. Which is crazy. Wow. Um, But this sunshield area was one of the parts that they were the most worried about because, again, it's super, super thin plastic that had to be deployed while it's being, like, thrown through space, right? So the plastic had to be basically stretched from the center of the telescope all the way across to make this giant like sail, almost like a solar sail, if you remember the solar sail project that they were thinking about. And so you've got like these floppy wires that are attached to this floppy plastic that's pulling it. And so Paul told me that you only need two or, you only actually need two or three layers to make sure that none of the energy gets through. But they're concerned that maybe stray asteroids or whatever might come through and just like rip little minute miniature holes in this thing. So they added extra layers of plastic to make sure that there's sort of redundancy mm-hmm. and also just make sure that it doesn't get hit by any heat whatsoever. Yeah. Right? So. <laughs> I can't believe they unfolded that in space. I know. And it had to land in that perfect position and be perfectly precise and calibrated and start looking into deep space right off the bat. That's like that's an insane yeah. 
engineering project. And the way they launched it too, it's like they didn't just like beeline for a certain area. It like, you know, got pulled around by certain mm -hmm. parts of gravity. Everything has been accounted for. So I mentioned that this thing is going to a very special point in space called Lagrange Point 2. Now, obviously named by this dude named last name Lagrange, but <laughs> any orbital body that is in the universe has five Lagrange points. Okay. So a couple of them are these little gravity wells. And this happens uh, because of something called the three-body problem, where you have one super massive or just pretty big orbital body that is very makes a lot of gravity, right? Mm -hmm. Has a lot of gravity. You've got a second one that's pretty big and has a lot of gravity. So we study the way that two objects interact all the time. How does the gravity of the sun affect the Earth? How does the gravity of the Earth affect the moon? Mm -hmm. But we don't often consider... There's two super large objects. Imagine you put a small object near them. It's being pulled by, by both. both objects in a certain way, right? Right. So generally, if you have a third object that is a certain distance away from the Earth or a certain distance close to the Earth, it will orbit the Earth in a specific way um, just based on how far away from the Earth it is. But it's also being pulled on by the sun. Now, we put this in a place called Lagrange Point 2 because Lagrange Point 2 is sort of behind the Earth in comparison to the Sun. So if you've got the Sun on the left, the Earth in the middle, Lagrange Point 2 is like pretty far away from the Earth, but it's not like on the right, okay. quote unquote, right? Now, this is pretty far away from the Earth. The Moon is 250,000 miles away from the Earth. Lagrange Point 2 is a million miles from the Earth. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know it was that far away. Yeah, it's far. It's far. Okay. Um, and we had to send, so we had to send this thing very far. It took a month just to get to Lagrange point too, right? Yeah. So some Lagrange points are like a horse's saddle, right? Where things can kind of like get to, and they're these special little places where things don't want to, things don't want to go there. It takes a lot of energy to go there because of the way that gravity interacts. And if you slip in any one direction, you're going to get pulled towards one of these giant orbital bodies, right? But there is a very fine area in this Lagrange point where it'll kind of like just balance there and it doesn't really move a lot in space. And that's important for Webb because we need Webb to be as like stable as possible. We need it to stare at things for a very long period of time without getting like thrown around. Yeah. And then also the other Lagrange points are sort of these gravity wells where things like asteroids will collect. We obviously don't want it to be there because mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to get pelted with with uh, all these asteroids. Yeah. Um, but the nice thing about Lagrange Point 2, and it's like it's, it feels so perfect. It's almost like this lined up absolutely perfectly because it's sort of in the shadow of the Earth. Oh, so we're not in the shadow of the Earth. We, we actually we make sure that we never eclipse by the Earth. So the, the L2 point is eclipsed by the Earth, but, but we orbit the L2 point. And that way we're always in the sunshine because we don't want to be eclipsed by the earth. Yeah, because we need to make electricity. Because it is powered by the sun. There's a ton, there's, uh, I think, two kilowatts of energy being pumped onto this at any given time. Nice. Which is just a lot of energy, right? Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier there, this thing costs $11 billion, lots of money. So but you could build your own PC for like a thousand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There, but there are so many things that could have gone wrong with this telescope. There were 344 individual points of failure. So any one thing breaks or just doesn't go correctly and $11 billion down the drain, obviously. Not a, not all of the $11 because a lot of that was R&D. A lot of mm -hmm. that was R&D. And Paul actually told me that things needed to get invented over time. Like they, they like 
incepted this, and then they were waiting for things to get invented so that they could put it in the telescope. So, so what made it take as long as it did to finally see the light of day in 2021? Uh, it was hard. <laughs> That's the short answer. Um, a, a whole, a whole spectrum of new tech of uh, technologies needed to either be invented hmm. wholesale or advanced substantially beyond their state of the art things got invented by canada and like by all these other countries and it's sort of this like intercontinental project because it's just going to tell us so much about the universe look at that humanity getting together to discover space things exactly everyone's been so nervous about this thing for so long because of all those points of failure that uh, scientists like Jonathan McDowell didn't actually submit a proposal for something that he wanted this to point at because he wasn't totally sure that it was even going to work, right? Oh. Huh. Yeah, it got delayed, 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 delayed forever. It finally launched and everyone was like on the edge of their seat completely. Yeah. It actually got launched on Christmas of 2021. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, uh, I don't know. That was a fun Christmas fun. morning. Yeah. yeah, very fun Christmas morning. Seeing that morning. thing get launched. Yeah. Imagine having to wait a month. <clears throat> To watch potentially 340 things go wrong. Yeah. And just waiting. Yeah. Well, and That's... not even just waiting that month, but like this thing has been in development since yeah, like yeah, 1990. Yeah. <laughs> it just keeps getting delayed. Um, now, it is powered by rocket fuel, obviously. So they have a certain amount of rocket fuel on this because it's not actually sitting specifically at Lagrange Point 2. It is being slowly sort of tugged towards Earth or and or towards the sun. But very, very slowly. So every now and then, every few months, it needs to just get a little spurt and go back towards Lagrange Point 2 a little bit. Every few months? Every few months. That's interesting. Yeah, because it's being pulled so slowly backwards that they have to like spurt it. And they were thinking like, okay, with the amount of fuel that we have on board, NASA said this has to last at least five years for us to actually spend this amount of money. Mm -hmm. But the amount of fuel that they had on board, they were hoping for at least 10 years. But the launch went so perfectly and they didn't have to like they didn't have to redefine the trajectory that much at all that they think it's going to last at least 30 years that's sweet yeah. now that's, it, that's here's maybe a sort of a pointless question but 30 years later runs out of rocket fuel uh-huh. this thing's falling into the ocean what is it just going to collapse towards earth and eventually burn up in the atmosphere uh, i mean it's a million miles away it is so but it's if, if, it when could, it runs out of fuel it has to f- fall somewhere yeah but we don't even know if it'll fall directly into the earth or if it'll fall away from the earth or if it'll you know there's uh, like there's so many possibilities okay i'm not really i'm sure someone has figured that out and looked that far into the future yeah um unlike Webb, who only looks into the past <laughs> <laughs> that's somebody's job though they definitely know like exactly how much room they've got to play with when yeah. they're repositioning it yeah 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 so yeah we were supposed to get the first images of this in june or july or from this in June or July, because they're calibrating the mirrors for three entire months. Um, And the cool thing for us normies is that the first like 10 or 20 images that they're going to be taking with this thing are really beautiful, like pictures that are going to make people really amazed. (laughs) Have you guys seen a a deep field photo? It's, uh, yeah, how do I describe that? It's, it's like composite, right? Sort of not really. Like an insane, high, insanely high resolution photo of just space, and you can see like, just looks like thousands of dots, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So the Hubble Deep Field is basically where you take a telescope, and uh, this one actually has a really cool thing where it can point at 
three stars and then just use those as like lock on points to keep itself extremely specifically placed, right? Because you need to take long exposures. You could take a couple minute exposure with this thing or you could take an exposure for like literally thousands of hours. Wow. And because this thing is in orbit and it's being like moved around, you've got basically optical image stabilization in here. You've got all these things. There's these rotating things that store um, angular momentum that are always rotating on the side of the telescope, but you can change the speed at which they're spinning to sort of shift the direction of the telescope oh. and make it point at something else. So cool. It always has to be pointed away from the sun because it's just going to get totally fried if it points towards the sun. But you can sort of make it go like this by just changing the angular momentum of those rotating positional motors. Wow. Um, but a deep field image is basically where you stare at a very specific point in space for a very, very long time. And the, the Hubble deep field, like Andrew said, is just like this photo of a bunch of like a ton of different stars. Like the furthest stuff we can see. So the furthest and the closest at the same time. And that's what makes it feel like a composite mm. is that here's a photo of the Hubble deep field. Um, and I'll try to explain it for the audio listeners. But you've got these orange stars, you've got like galaxies, and then you've got these blue dots, right? And mm. if you think about it, because we talked about space and time being like the same thing earlier in the podcast, the closer things are blue because blue is more in the visible spectrum. So that means that they're closer to us. We're getting those more recently. Things that are further away or put this light out a long time ago are more red. Right. So it's one photo where you're seeing galaxies and stars and all this different stuff from different distances and different periods of time. Yeah. So it's almost like a static slideshow in a way, like a static GIF, if that makes any sense. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool. Cause like you can see this one is, uh, this one's orange, this one's blue. Like, so we've done deep fields with Hubble and we're gonna be doing some really amazing deep fields with this where we can see even further back, you know, see some in higher definition, see some of the earliest galaxies, like these are, Beautiful galaxies, and we're going to be able to see earlier ones. Can't wait to see some high-resolution galaxies. Yeah. Galaxy HD. Galaxy HD. It's going to be sick. Um, <laughs> because it's all taxpayer money, they want to make like the first 20-ish things that they stare at just be those like beautiful cosmic images that get people really excited about, about the universe and about NASA. Mm -hmm. um, but then you could submit a proposal to like, have it stare at other stuff. So people have been submitting proposals for what they want JWST to stare at for a very long time. And there's a queue that lasts like multiple years. I was going to say like, okay, how do they decide what they're going to point it at next? Like if you work for them, obviously they have a, a certain priority and they've decided that the most cosmically beautiful, inspiring images should get priority. But then what? Well, so those images are actually not really the priority, right? The priority well, that's, the, that's because we paid for it. They're giving right, us, yeah. throwing us a bone over here. The incentive, yeah. and we get to see that oh, stuff. Because you're saying we work for them is what you're saying. Right. They, I'm work, just for us. they work for us. But right. I just want to know like what that cue looks like and how they sort for, them, for like what to do next. I think it's based on importance, based on what a panel says like is the most important thing to look at. Actual experts. Yeah, because a lot of people submit things, and then they've got a ton of different people that like kind of vote and it's sort of like a bubbling system of what it should stare at. Yeah. And again, like sometimes like they award you a specific amount of time. And sometimes they're like, okay, I've only got this much time, so I'm going to point it at this exoplanet that's closer to us. 
hmm. because I need uh, I don't need as long of an exposure, or I want to stare at the beginnings of the universe and I need to point it there for thousands of hours, right? Yeah. Um, huh. Yeah. Yeah. So again, just to reiterate, like what everyone that I talked to said, like I think the most exciting thing about this is that we have no idea what we're going to discover with this telescope. Yeah. And the fact that it was supposed to launch so long ago is like we could have already known all of this. Mm -hmm. But yeah. we're finally getting there. Do you know if we already have plans for uh, the next generation? Yeah. What was it? Oh, the next generation. The next, next generation. <laughs> yeah. So I have I have asked um, I asked a couple of the people that I interviewed about that. And they do have plans. There are some that they're like still drawing out on napkins right now, obviously. Okay. <laughs> but the plans for the next telescopes are in different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay. Yeah. So that's cool. And I, now we have this for potentially an extra 20 years. We thought we were going to have it. Yeah. So way more time to mess with this one. Right. I think they have ideas for another infrared, but they would want to see different things. They want to see deeper. Yeah. They want to see closer at a higher resolution, you know, all that different kind of stuff. And that's kind of the cool thing is you can make a telescope for sort of every use case because like infrared telescopes are really good at studying exoplanets and studying like the origins of the universe. But maybe a radio telescope is much better for studying other types of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm glad that the world was able to come together and put together something so incredibly obviously precise and engineering wise so impressive mm -hmm. that we can actually attack these just existential questions about the universe, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what it actually comes back comes yeah. back with. So luckily, um, Paul said that he would be happy to come onto Waveform once we start to get the first images, That'd so that cool. he could explain what we're seeing. Yeah. Oh, yes, please. So yes, we're, please. We're gonna have him on uh, in June or July, sometime this summer. Yeah. Coming this summer Coming to this a podcast summer. near you. <laughs> The first pictures. The origins of the universe. Yeah, the first pictures, <laughs> but in a different way. <laughs> I can't wait till the Samsung S35 Ultra <laughs> has this on its camera Yo. on the back. No yeah. more moon mode. Yeah. Now we 100X, got, you, we, <laughs> the 100X, 100X zoom was cool. Best, yeah. Huawei's moon capture mode was cool, but wait till you get the James Webb mode. The exoplanet. James Webb mode. <laughs> exoplanet mode, yeah. I'm going to go watch, I'm going to finally get to watch all the videos I've not been watching yeah. about this so I can <laughs> yeah. see things a little more clear. But I kept wondering, like, is my feed flooded because I keep doing research or is it flooded because it was just being flooded? Pork and a little bit of both. Yeah, true. true, 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 true. Well, it, it'll be. It'll be. Yeah. Hopefully your feeds are now going to be littered with this after listening to this yeah, episode. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to drop in uh, a bunch of the links Lots that I found links, very yeah. useful in the, uh, in the com not the comment section down below, in the, in the show in the links. Show notes. Show notes. Show yeah, notes. yeah, the show notes. Hey, shout out to everybody who was interviewed for this episode. Shout out to NASA for volunteering some time for some extra information to help us out with this and also for making a really cool uh, telescope that's going to discover all kinds of things about the universe. Um, petition to point it at the sea. <laughs> the C? That's the, what we decided oh, on before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Point, yeah, we should. It's a long episode. Formal <laughs> submission. Pointed at the, uh, yeah. Pointed at, at the, the ocean. ocean. See Maybe we see some there. of those really creepy fish that shouldn't exist. <laughs> see what's down there. Okay. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for watching. Peace.